Well, Amen. I uh, would like to invite you to join me in saying thank you to the leadership of our worship team. Just express our gratitude. I uh, told Isaac all worship leaders are not created equal, and uh, just like preachers. And uh, I have appreciated their ministry to us, both the delivery of it and the substance of it. So thank you for encouraging us as we unite together to honor God as he is worthy of that. And Kenny, you read one of the best songs possible to invite us to enter into the worship of one who's worthy. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And I'm glad to do that with you on this Lord's Day. Take your Bible, join me in Genesis chapter 2, and as you're turning there, um, just a couple of comments, uh, one triggered by what Kenny was saying, and I know I miss Kendall, but I'm adapting. Uh, I, um, I want to encourage you, if, if accountability is the friend of integrity, accountability is the friend of your Christianity, um, you can have high and good intention, and because you don't have sufficient support or accountability, you may not achieve what was possible. It's, uh, it's a little bit like the fitness thing, you know, if you're out of shape and unfit and you make a resolve to be in the weight room or in the fitness center, it's really helpful to have somebody to meet you there, to hold you accountable to get there, to call you Alice when you're wimpy and to invite you to push harder and do more. And so as you make calibrating corrections, and that's what I'm hopeful for, it's meant to challenge and encourage you. You are salt, and you need to be salty. And that involves the things we talked about last night, and that requires intentionality. You'll have impact if you are what God says you are. And if you have allies helping you do that, the probability is greater that you will achieve that in the ways that both honor the Lord and influence others for his glory. As is true with seeking the Lord. You know, putting God first, taking time daily for God alone is a discipline. And it is helpful to have allies. Guys that you're sharing with, hey, I read this today. This is what stood out to me. Um, so find some brothers. Verbalize the convictions that you intend to follow through on and hold each other accountable so that collectively and together you can celebrate. Man, I'm somewhere that I wasn't last year. Uh, I've made progress, meaningful progress, and uh, you do that together. And uh, that's just reality as a Christian. You need brothers. Um, and so that's kind of the first overarching comment, accountability is the friend of your Christianity. And, and number two, and maybe the harder thing that we didn't really punctuate last night, I, I did teach long and I appreciate the fact that you stayed with me, uh, but I wanted to uh, impart some things that I think were convictionally important. And one of those things is hopefully you got it, is I gotta get engaged. I can't be withdrawn, I have to be proactively engaged. And this is just a practical application that I believe has been helpful to me. Engage where you already are engaged. Engaged where, engage where you have natural passions and places that you're already um, inclined to be. Um, I'm a car person, I'm a motorcycle person, and motorcycle people and car people are unique. They have 
consistent kind of shared camaraderie because of those passions. Um, once a month, the Porsche dealer in our neighborhood has cars and coffee. And guys come, lots of guys come. Some gals come and you know, you can walk around and look at those cars and I can talk to anybody because we relate at that level which gives opportunity to relate at a different level. Up at Newcomb's Ranch on the Angeles Crest, every Friday morning there's the Good Vibes Club. Coffee, donuts, guys bring their own donuts. I guess donuts is a kind of a staple for car guys. But it's another situation where something I enjoy, zero work to go look at somebody else's vehicle and enjoy it, talk about it. That's a passion I have. And some of you don't care at all about that. You know, you get in your car because it gets you from A to B. And I said to someone last night, some of you drive cars without a soul. They're electric. <laughs> I can't even relate to that other than they accelerate you know, I'll accelerate but there's no joy in that but you know my point is what's the difference I'm a good guy that's not a good guy no it's just the way God made us or the way God configured us some of you are into music some of you are into other things leverage that passion as a place of engagement because people in the zones that God has built you to be interested in need what you have. And so I believe that's providential and sovereign. And so what I'm into is what I focus on as the place where my salt needs to be uh, expressed, needs to be experienced. So I, I offer that as an encouragement to you because to me that's easy. Um, it's different than, you know, cold calling. These are relationships I already have. Um, and I think that's the best kind of Christian witness because you can get to know people. Um, well, this morning, um, we've been talking about maximizing your life. Talking about maximizing your life by intentional, impactful seeking. Setting your heart to seek the Lord. Number two, impactful engaging. Intentional and impactful engagement. Potent and present. In proximity. If you are who Jesus says you are, you're going to leave an impression. You're going to make a difference. Promoting growth, the soil. Inhibiting corruption, the manure pile. You're good for everything unless you're tasteless. So this is promoting high potent Christianity, Christ first Christianity. That's the secret. Seek God walk with God, engage with people who need God. That's the big idea. This morning I want to focus on intentional and impactful sharing. So we talked about seeking, engaging, and sharing. I want to talk about the necessity of partnership, and I'm going to focus on the book of origins, the book of Genesis, and I'm going to talk about partnership and companionship, the importance of it. This is fundamentally focused on your relationship with your spouse. This is focused, some of you are married, I've met you, and by the way, thank you for letting me badger you with questions and engage. I've enjoyed the fellowship. Um, I welcome the opportunity to get to know you and thank you for granting me that opportunity and I've enjoyed being with you and I appreciate the brotherhood and the the new relationships that uh, we're gaining this weekend. But people need people. 
And fundamentally, the chief person a man needs is a wife, a spouse. Some of you are married. I'm talking to you. Some of you are not married. You're not there yet. You haven't found the right girl or the, you're not in the stage of life where that's possible. I'm talking to you too. Because you don't just walk an aisle and make promises and morph into the man you should be. You don't automatically assume perspective just because you enter into the most significant relationship you will ever have. So whatever you think about how you get to the wedding day, whether it's dating or courtship, the issue is whatever precedes it is designed to mature to the place so you can deliver on the promises you make before witnesses and God. So you need to understand what the Bible communicates about this significant relationship so that when you are given the opportunity, if the Lord wills, and by the way, that's normative. Some of you are set apart to be single. And that's okay. Set apart to be single is a unique space that God has set you aside for himself. Fully devoted, 1 Corinthians 7, undistracted. But that's not the normative path. The normative path is what we're going to read in Genesis 2. And some of you have been married and you're not married. Because the journey you took was absent either the Lord himself or the understanding of what we're going to talk about. And I'm telling you as a pastor of many, many years having married a lot of couples and coached and counseled a lot more. What we're about to talk about, and I hope you will see, and that's why I'm doing it, because marriage is not well understood, even among Christians. In terms of what God prescribed and why he prescribed it, why it is and what it actually consists of. We understand the ceremony of it, but we don't often have mature perspectives beyond that. And so we have a rough ride. And some of us are bearing the injuries and the loss because we weren't mature in our understanding of both the necessity, the why, and the reality, the what. So if you've been through that journey of pain, you find yourself alone, I'm going to encourage you, this is for you too. Because one, not to beat yourself up, I wish I'd have known that, but hey, if I ever have the opportunity, the Lord ever grants a second chance, I want to be ready. And at a minimum, your life can be a benefit to somebody else's life. Even if you don't have that opportunity a second time, hey, let me coach you. Because the school of hard knocks is a hard school. So because of the high value and the growing devaluing of this marriage relationship in our culture, the extended time that men are taking to enter into this relationship, I want to talk about it. Because it's connected to your production and your effectiveness and your satisfaction. Missional maximization involves, by necessity, partnership. So that's the big idea, and that's why we're focused on this today. And I'm hopeful it'll be helpful because it's what God says about this critical relationship. So we're, we're looking at Genesis 2.18. Chapter 1, everything is finished. Chapter 1 is the Mike macro. It's all six days of creation. 
God finishes, calls it good, calls it very good. Then the day of celebration, the day of rest, and appreciation and reflection. God rested from all his work, not because God was tired. It was a, an example to us to appreciate the production and the beauty of creation, which is a gift from God. He created it, he celebrated it, he reflected on it, and he modeled for us the rhythm of a good life. Work hard, be creative and productive, and then rest, reflect, celebrate, and benefit from that reality. Chapter two is a micro. It zeroes in on day six. So you're getting it from the book of origins, which is what Genesis is, the beginning. You're getting a picture you would otherwise not have if God didn't reveal it. Right? Nobody was there. So God is revealing for our benefit how it was made, what he thought about what he made, and particularly the making and the forming of the man. Chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then God put man in the garden. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. I just find it interesting, and I like to meditatively think my way through the Bible, but in a perfect world without sin and all the beauty of creation that God called very good, he made something even better than very good, the garden, and he put man whom he had formed in the best possible place in the perfect world that he had made, revealing the heart of God for you. I want you to be in the very best place you could be. And then... According to verse 15, he took that man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it, give him a job. Because work is a good thing. We're built to work. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, enjoy it. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat from it you will surely die. We're familiar with that restriction in a garden of great benefit and blessing. So he creates man, he forms him. The Hebrew word is he shaped him out of the dust, kind of like a, a human mud man. And then he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Day six, culmination of creation. Verse 18 is where we begin. And I want to highlight some things, and I'm going to argue you need to master these next seven verses, 18 to 25. They have rich foundational meaning. You need to mine and meditate truth out of these passages and own it. Then the Lord God said, so man is created and placed and commissioned to work. Then the Lord God, Yahweh, said, It is not good for the man to be alone. So the first thing you need to recognize is, is that the relationship we're going to talk about, the marriage relationship, is the consequence of an observation by the perfect diagnosis assessor, God. It is not good. 
It's not neutral. It's not good. It's not good for what? Man to be alone. And the word alone has relevance because the word alone has to do with isolation. That word's not used a lot in the Old Testament, but it's used of a sparrow on a rooftop all by itself in Psalm 121, alone on the top of a house. It's used of a leper who is put out of the camp, isolated and alone from the community of people, alone. Loneliness is a powerful reality that is meant to be combated by what we're going to look at today. And when you're alone, it's not good. Philip Zimbardi, a professor at Stanford University, says, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There is mo no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. Isolation has been shown to be the central agent in the development of depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, rape, suicide, and mass murder, end quote. He goes on to add, to add the, the devil's strategy, which would imply this professor has some understanding of reality. The devil's strategy for our times is to trivialize human existence and to isolate us from one another while creating the delusion that the reasons are time pressures, work demands, or economic anxieties. Dr. James Lynch, a specialist in what he calls psychosomatic diseases at the University of Maryland, wrote a book, The Broken Heart, The Medical Consequences of Loneliness. He said, almost every segment of our society seems to be deeply afflicted by one of the major diseases of our age, human loneliness. He goes on to say that the price we are paying for our failure to understand our biological creative needs for love and human companionship may be ultimately exacted in our own hearts and blood vessels. The soul was not created to live solo. We live and yearn for intimacy. And marriage is where most people hope they'll find it. We live in a culture of crowded loneliness. You can be in church and be alone. It's not just physical presence, it's human connection. And God is making a statement that I'm hopeful that you will embrace and hear loud and clear. It is not good for that to be the case. So God, with his diagnostic capacity, says, I'm going to fix that with infinite ability. No problem with his research and development department. No problem with resourcing. God who can do anything and make anything says the solution to the not good alone problem is I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now I want to highlight a couple of things that you need to understand. The word helper. It's used 80 times of a general saying, I need help. I've got, they've got too many soldiers, I need help. The Ugaritic root for the word helper is someone who makes up what is lacking. They're an asset partner to provide an essential provision. It doesn't mean they're lesser. 
It means they're essential and critical because they provide something you don't have that you desperately need. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, says there's too many to judge. Appoint for yourselves judges who will help you. Help is a provision because you don't have what you need to fulfill, listen, a mission. I mean, we quoted it, I think, last night or yesterday. David being the archetype example, when he accomplished, this is Acts 13, 36. You ought to look at it. When he accomplished his purpose in his generation, slept with his fathers. David is not the only guy who has a purpose in his generation. He's a type of every man who has a purpose in his generation. Your purpose is missional, made by God for an eternal purpose of God. Not just to make widgets and make a living, but to be an impact player for eternity. You're unique. You're one of a kind. Nobody like you. Who made you? Psalm 139. God made you. He's intimately acquainted with all of your ways. You possess the assets that you have because he wanted you to have them. He's the master of Matthew 25. Called his slaves and entrusts his assets, his talents to them. Five, two, one, according to each man's ability. You're unique, sovereignly entrusted with assets to be used for missional, eternal kingdom purposes. And if you don't think that way, you're not thinking biblically. It's not just your pastors and your elders. It's not just celebrity preachers. It's every called by God Christian created for the purposes of God. And in order to secure that ground, you need a partner. You need help. Because you're not a one-man operation. See, when God created man and when, when he created humanity, he created them in his image, male and female. Because women bear the image of God and they promote the glory of God in ways that men don't. And the united teeming of the glory of God in a man and a woman maximizes God's glory and accomplishes God's intended mission. Not good to be alone involves the provision of a practical partner. And I'm not talking about doing the laundry, doing the dishes, and mowing the lawn. I'm talking about a full-on missional partner. I mean, David said, I look up into the hills from what's cometh my help. My help comes from Yahweh. So obviously, Yahweh is not a subordinate to the one needing help. It's not about rank. It's about need and capacity and strength. And as a man, in order to accomplish the mission, you need help that you do not have if you do not have her. Practical partner is the big idea to accomplish the mission that you were destined to accomplish in your generation. Number two, the helper is suitable. Suitable is a word which means a complement, someone who fits. It was used of puzzle pieces coming together, broken pottery pieces being brought together, someone who fits you. 
a complementary companion. The companion who is intimate with you. We talk about soulmate. This is that idea. Someone who fits you and you uniquely. It's translated in Proverbs as intimate companion. This is not a practical, productive word. This is a relational companionship word. God did not come back with a bunch of buddies to play golf with on Saturdays. He didn't come back with some guys to hunt with. He didn't come back with some guys to hang with. He didn't come back with an 80-inch screen, surround sound, and a satellite dish tuned to ESPN. God said, I'm going to make a helper who fits. A complement with whom he can relate. Now listen, God's in the picture. So the idea that man can be alone with God in the world isn't because God's not able. It's God making a choice that this is not what I'm going to do. I'm transcendent. I'm above another of a different kind. But he needs someone of the same kind, but different. Not a Steve, but an Eve. Not many, one. Not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to fix it. With all of my capacity and all of my diagnostic and research ability, is there any chance his solution is inadequate? No chance. You have a culture that says this doesn't work. Oh, yes, it does. We just have to work it the way he wants it worked. Because there isn't any other solution. There's no substitute. And you can say, I can make this work on my own, but it's not designed to work that way. Verse 19. Interesting, 19 and 20. So now we know there's a problem, God said. Now we know he's going to solve the problem with a practical partner and an intimate companion. Verse 19, and out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. This is again, day six. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. This is his mission. He was, in chapter 1, commissioned to rule over the earth and have dominion over it. Chapter 1, verse 28, the Lord God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's man's mission as commissioned by God. Ruling the creation as co-regent. So he's naming the animals. This is because the first question you ask is, why are we naming the animals? Why don't we just jump to put him to sleep, take the rib, fashion it into a woman? Because he's demonstrating what man is commissioned to do and what he needs a partner for. And he's also demonstrating something else. The man, verse 20, gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So who knows he has a problem at the end of verse 20? Adam does. Which raises his awareness that in a world that is perfect, with all of the wonder of creation, there's nothing in the world that fits me. 
which when he receives Eve, when he receives the God-created helper suitable, it's going to raise the priority that I'm going to call precious. You are one of the kind. There's no one like you in the world. And when you raise the value of something to that level, it changes the way you treat someone or something. And I want you to see that if you're married or when you get married and the man walks the girl down the aisle, that man represents God. There's two people in a wedding who represent God. The vow uniter, the preacher, because God makes marriages, not men. What God has joined together, Jesus said, let no man tear asunder. You don't make it, you can't break it, because God did it. And when the father walks the daughter, or the male representative walks the gal down the aisle, you are seeing an image symbolizing God who is providing this necessary gift. And the father will be smiling or crying. <laughs> if he doesn't like the guy, no, I'm teasing. <laughs> He'll be smiling and she'll be smiling. The people will be standing and they'll be looking and the music will be playing. Because it's a big moment. And it ought to be a big moment. Because it's the presentation of a solution that nothing else in the world can provide. Which is why you read here, verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept, and he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. Now let me just color this in for you. Let me, let me give you some perspective about what's going on in this text. Number one, she's fashioned, not formed. Now if your Bible doesn't say fashioned, you need to trade it in for a translation that does. Because fashioned is an art, creative, beautiful forming of someone. It's, it's artsy. It's what God uses in the Old Testament of creating the universe. He builds it and he fashions it for his glory. Solomon used it of the temple. He built it and fashioned it. He took the best skilled craftsmen. Man was formed like a mud man. She's fashioned. Here's the word I'd like you to think. Custom built. It's not a spec house, one of five designs. It's an architect looking at what is exactly needed and creating it. This is not a suit off the rack. This is measured for you. And God with infinite ability is presenting her, bringing her to the man. And he's, she's, she comes from living material. She's not from the dust. She's from the rib. From the core of the man, God is providing a core need. And he's creating, like an artist creates. <clears throat> and he's unveiling her like an artist unveils his latest work. The word bow, which is the word for broad, means to unveil. In many days, in many marriages of days and years ago, 
Brides came down the aisle, veiled. And when they got to the front, the father would unveil his daughter. That was a, an example of this, a presentation, a formal presentation by God and the father unveiling for the man his solution to man's need, his provision. My daughter. Unveiling, and, and the reason why this is beautiful and important, and if you're married, you remember this, and if you're going to be married, you should enjoy this better. And I tell the guys I'm married, I'm going to do a wedding here in just a month or so. I tell the guys, hey, listen, you get where you can see her and you think about what's happening. Because when you see that father, you need to see God. And when you see her, you need to see a custom-built solution provided to you by God. And when she gets to the front, if she has a veil and she's unveiled, it's God with pomp and circumstance. See, I don't think it was he just came walking up with the first woman. I think he came first and she was behind and he stepped aside and said, take a look at this. I just made this for you. And we know that God, with those words, the idea is what an artist would do, unveiling his latest work of art. There'd be pride in that presentation because of God's divine provision, his solution. This is a big deal because there's nothing in the world that can do this but her, and she's custom made for you. And we know that Adam bought into this because verse 23 says, the man said, this is now. In the Hebrew language, now is emphatic. It comes first. Now. It's like now we're talking. Now this is bone of my bone. Verse 23. She does fit me. This is flesh of my flesh. Now watch this. She shall be called, here's the Hebrew word, isha, woman. Because she was taken out of Ish. Do you hear the similarity? Adam is saying, I'm giving her a derivative of my name because she goes with me. I'm agreeing with God that what I needed, she is provided. Which is why a woman gets a man's name. Because when she gets his name, he is agreeing with God that what I lack, she's custom built by you for. And I want her to be, whether she's with me or away from me, identified with me by giving her my name. Because before she was Eve, she was Isha, which was a reflection of his identification with her and the suitable helper that she was. This is the book of origins. This is the way it is. It's been marred by sin. It's been corrupted by culture. It's been diminished. And I think, unfortunately, we misunderstand the high value and the beautiful reality of what God has done and what is necessary. We've solved the aloneness problem, right? Almost. Look at the marriage verse, verse 24. For this cause... Some of your Bibles will say, for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now just look up for me. 
For what cause? For what reason? Because this is the marriage with four times in the Bible, three times in the New Testament, Jesus is asking Matthew 19 about marriage, and he quotes this verse. Mark chapter 10, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul quotes this verse. It's the marriage verse. If you get married and somebody doesn't quote their verse, you need to get your money back. This is the marriage verse. And the marriage verse begins with, for this cause. What cause? Isn't this paragraph about a problem? It's the aloneness problem. Well, didn't we fix that? We got us a girl. God's proud. Man's happy. Why for this cause? This cause introduces the fact that it's a two-part solution to the loneliness problem. It's the right person in the right place. Otherwise, just live together. Find you a girl, you're not alone, got the, got the attribute you need, the asset you need, practical partner, make sure she can do good stuff, and make sure you can relate to her. Problem solved. No, it isn't. It's a two-part solution. The cause is solving the aloneness problem that involves the right person in the right place, and the right place is the covenant relationship called marriage. It's a leave, three Hebrew verbs. Verse 24, it's a leave, my translation, cleave, and unite relationship. Marriage has three pillars that provide the context, the safe space, that allows you to experience the solving of the aloneness problem, the necessary helper, and the intimate companion partner. So let's talk marriage. It's a covenant, number one, it's not a contract. Contract is, if you fulfill your part, I will maintain my promises. Otherwise, the contract is null and void. This is a covenant. This is two parties on each side, his side, her side, Witnesses, a representative of God walking down the aisle, and vows made. And then there's a common meal which happens afterwards, which is the reception. All of that typifying that we just had a covenant, not a contract. And let me say this plainly. When these promises of leave, cleave, and unite, because that's what's involved, are made, they are made in recognition that I will even if you don't. I will even if you don't. And the only exception, actually there's two in the New Testament except for adultery. Hard-hearted, violating the marital covenant by violating this expression of intimacy and commitment outside of the bounds of marriage. Jesus said that. Except for the cause of adultery. Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 7, if you have an unbelieving spouse who says, you changed the rules. I married you. You weren't a believer. You're now a believer, and you're doing life different. I didn't sign up for this, and I want out of this. Paul says, let them go. You don't desert them because you sanctify them by your believing presence. But if an unbelieving spouse says, I don't want this, 
Paul says you can, it's called desertion. They leave. Except for those two exceptions, it's an I will even if you don't relationship. I love to use this passage in a wedding ceremony. It comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, King James. It's the way I learned it, so I'm going to quote it that way. My wife cross-stitched it and put on the uh, wall of our 12 by 60 mobile home that we lived in while I went to seminary. And it's, it reads like this. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth, endeavoring to invite them to trust him because of his love for them. And this is what he says. Verse 15, verse, 2 Corinthians 12. I will which is a resolution of his heart, I will very gladly, because I want to, not because I have to, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. I'm going to give my assets, material, and my assets internally. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Now here's the kicker. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. You know what that is? Christ-like. <clears throat> I quoted it last night. If you love those who love you, what is that? Anybody can do that. Yeah. The distinguishing mark of a Christian husband is when you don't, I will. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. And the reason I like that verse in the King James, and I love the New American Standards, the translation I use, it's not as good of a translation in context as the King James is. Because my Bible will shift it and basically say, since I loved you like that, shouldn't you love me too? Which is the antithesis of love. Love isn't I give it so you give it. Love is I give it because I love you. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know love by this, 1 John 3.16, that he himself laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Let me tell you what love is. Unconditional, undeserved, voluntary, at cost for the benefit of someone else, whether they do it or not. And when he did it for us, we were what? Enemies. Harry, why are you talking about this? I'm telling you that in the context of marriage, it's a covenant and a promise. I will love you. I'll be faithful to you until death do us part. Not if you do too. Covenant love. And that covenant love is a commitment in three ways. Now, just pause for a second. What are we doing? What we're trying to highlight is not good for you to be alone. What we're trying to highlight is you need a practical partner and an intimate companion. God provided. Big picture, he proudly presents her. Man enthusiastically receives her. Core need provided out of the core of the man. And there's a necessary covenant relationship that allows that provision to fulfill its purpose. So you need a leave, cleave, and unite relationship. And if you're not married, you're cultivating these priorities. If you are, so that when you have the opportunity, you're ready. 
And if you are married, you're making sure that you're making adjustments like today. So you get home today and you say, you know what? I didn't quite see this the way I needed to see it. And honey, first of all, I have to apologize. Number two, I'm going to make an adjustment. And I'd love it if we could partner together because this affects everything. You're built for this and you're not going to be satisfied any more than I'm going to be satisfied if we don't realize this. Otherwise, we're both going to be alone. And that is not good. So let's talk leave. First Hebrew verb. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. What are father and mother to a child? They're leaders and authorities. Obey them is what the Bible says. Children, obey your parents. This is the first commandment with a promise. So who are the authorities for a young man prior to marriage? Father and mother. Who's the authority for a young woman before marriage? Father and mother. The word leave is a strong word. It's abandon. It's forsake. It's depart. I like to ask the question, how far do you go leaving? Out of the tent? Out of the compound? Out of the city? Out of the community? Out of the country? Here's my answer, as far as you need to go to leave. It's because it's not a geography issue. It's leaving, here it is, a former trusted authority transferring to a new trusted authority. Leaving is abandoning a previous authority. Who would that be? Parents. For a new trusted authority. Who would that be? Well, for the man, it's Christ and all Christ-appointed authorities. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where it gives the hierarchy of authority. Verse 3. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 11. And you, you ought to know this, or at least note this passage and look at it later. Paul writes, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. That's authoritative language. He's the leader. He's the appointed authority over every man. And the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. So Christ in his humanity said, not my will, but thine be done. He's submitting to the Father's authority. In his deity, he's an equal. But in his incarnated humanity, he behaved as a man should behave towards God. Submission, obedience. The authority of the man is who? Christ. And all Christ-appointed authorities. And I add that because there are governmental authorities that you are commissioned by God to obey when they function in the zone that they have been appointed to function. Like if the blue lights come on behind me on the five, I ought to pull over. That never happened, but I just want you to know if it does happen. You have authorities appointed by Christ. Here's another one, your elders. Obey them that have the rule over you, Hebrews 13, for they watch for your soul. Do you hear the word obey? You're under their authority. 
They have spiritual authority. They don't want to run your life. Am I fair in saying that, Kendall? I don't want to run your life, but I have responsibility to watch over the people God entrusted to me as their shepherd. I'm an elder at Grace Community Church. I got 450 people in my fellowship group. We have a big church. We're responsible for those sheep and we have authority. We watch for their souls. And the writer of Hebrews says, and you, you want to let those guys do it with joy. Not painfully by being resistant to the Christ appointed authority. So you have spiritual authorities appointed by Christ and husbands are leaving parental authority representing God to Christ and all Christ appointed authorities. There's a transfer of leadership, authority, trust. And the woman is leaving her parents and their authority and coming underneath her husband's authority because he's the head of the woman. Which is why you read, and, and turn with me since we're over in that neighborhood, Colossians chapter 3. Here's a helpful passage because there's only two verses on marriage. Ephesians, which is a sister book, has 11 and I argue that you got two if you lived at Colossae and in that area, and that's because if you don't get anything else, you better get this. There's one verse for the wife. It says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Verse 18, chapter 2. As is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting is tantamount to saying, this is the way God designed it. It's not because you're lesser. It's what he designed. Leader, partner, follower. The word subject is hupotasso, tasso to arrange, hupo under. It's the voluntary act of an equal. My wife is not lesser than me, but I have a different position and responsibility than she has. So, as of notice, it doesn't say husbands make your wife submit. Nowhere do you find husbands make your wife submit. So that's out of your purview as the person giving leadership. It's wives, submit yourselves, arrange yourself under the leadership of your husband because that's the way God designed it. And the husband's leadership is to be characterized, verse 19, two verbs, not one. Husbands, love your wives. Love them. And we just talked about love. Unconditional, sacrificial, beneficial, Whatever it takes, he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. And that certainly ought to happen at home. It's a present active imperative. It's not optional. When the Bible uses the present tense, this is the habit and the behavior of your life. It's not spasms of loving. It's consistent loving. It's sacrificial, other-centered priority. Considering not your own needs, but the needs of others as well. You do teach about Christian love. It's not lip service to that. And the, the most important space to do that is the ministry space in your home. Because if your children don't see a man sacrificially loving a wife, they misunderstand love. You're the model of divine love to your children. They'll know whether it's her first, preferring her needs above yourself. They'll know if it's sacrificial or self-centric. 
Husbands, love your wife. And get this, and I want you to see it. Verse 19, two verbs. And don't be embittered against them. NIV, don't ever be harsh with them. The word embittered comes from the word to poke or to stab. Embittered is you've been poked or stabbed. And you don't let that injury prompt you to respond with injury. Listen, you're in a home, you're in a marriage, guess what you are? You're in a relationship with a sinner. And you're a sinner. So you have humanity, depravity, in close proximity. And then you add to the enemy, and guess what you have? Injury. Injury happens at home. When injured by a spouse, you know the, the, the words or the neglect or whatever it is that she might do that feels like a stabbing wound. Here's the Greek language. Don't ever respond in kind. Embittered means I'm going to stab you back. Embittered means I'm going to hold you accountable and injure you too. Don't ever do that. You're leaving your father and mother for a new authority, Christ. And if it's the woman, she's coming under you as you follow Christ. And when she injures you, you lead her gently and lovingly, irrespective of for fallen humanity. That's the kind of leader a woman will follow. Anybody feeling convicted besides the preacher? This is why you need to practice let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, verse 16 of Colossians 3. Because when the word of God dwells in you, takes up full residence, every room of your heart, parallel passage, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Not drunk with wine where there's dissipation, filled with the Spirit, governed by the Spirit of God, full of the word of God, you manifest the fruit of the life of God, you, you have all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The fruit of a spirit-filled life, that's God submitted. He rules, he governs. I'm filled up, controlled by him. The word of God dwelling richly in me allows me to be the loving, gentle leader to a woman who may not follow and respect me the way she ought to. Leaving is a new authority, and I'm encouraging you because I'm talking to the men, to be the loving leader she can follow. Now, 1 Peter 3 says, you may be able, and she's to win you without a word, by the respectful, submissive, quiet, way she responds to your failure. She's got a responsibility when you're not what you should be and you have a responsibility to not injure her back when she's not what she should be. I have yet to meet the woman who won't follow a man who follows Christ. A man who puts Christ first and her first. Loves her gently, seeks God passionately, trust is what is produced in your home. 
And if your partner is going to fulfill her potential as an intimate companion and practical ally, you need to lead her. And you need to leave all previous priorities. Because listen, a lot of men and women still chase their parents' approval, affirmation. I like to say they pursue their smile. I have two children. They're both interested in what I think about what they do. My daughter's a stylist. She does hair and all the stuff cosmetic people do. And she just had a baby, which is why my hair is so long, because she's out of pocket. And I'm not paying $40 to have something. <laughs> so as soon as she returns to her form, I'll look more like I should look. But my daughter will send me pictures. Somebody whose hair she's just colored, some new style she's just done. Why me? I'm her father. Because that's what children do. They seek the approval and affirmation of parents. And when you get married, you're leaving that and reprioritizing a new smile, your spouse. Now, it's not evil that Wendy sends me pictures. But when Wendy calls and says, hey, the battery's dead, what do we do? I'd say, ask your husband. That's his role. If he wants to ask me, I'll help, but I'm not doing it without him. So number one is leave. Establish new authority, a new hierarchy, and chase another smile. Number two is cleave. Turn back with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. My Bible says cleave. Some of your Bibles will say hold fast. And I recognize, when's the last time you used the word cleave? Not unless you're reading the Bible, right? And if you talk cleave in this culture, you use a meat cleaver to cut things apart, separate. And this is directly the opposite. The word cleave comes from a Hebrew word which means to solder joints or to glue. It has the idea of connecting. It's used in Job of skin fused to skins. So the idea of cleaving literally would be if I'm going to do your wedding, I've got human crazy glue and I'm going to Siamese you right here, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm. Because that's what the word means. But it doesn't take a lot of insight to recognize this is a figurative use of the word cleave, fuse, unite. Not unite, bad word because the next one's unite. Connect in a gluing type way. This word has to do with uniting and holding fast in unrivaled loyalty. Let me give you the definition and I'll show it to you. Because it's God's favorite word for his people. He says multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy to his people, love me and cling to me. Love me and cleave to me. Love me and hold fast to me. Not Siamese glue to me, but be exclusively loyal to me in an unrivaled relationship. Because marriage is built on security. Marriage is built on the conviction that I'll be faithful to you and you alone. 
Turn over with me to Joshua 23, and I'm going to show you one passage. There's a lot we could look at, but this is one that I think is particularly colorful and helpful as it relates to this idea of cleaving an exclusive, unrivaled loyalty. By the way, this word is used 60 times in the Old Testament to stick to, to adhere to, to glue. Joshua 23, verse 6. This is Joshua's last speech to the people before he moves off the scene. This is where he's going to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. This is at the end of his life and ministry, and he's calling the people to some foundational bottom lines as it relates to their relationship with God. And this is what he says, verse 6. Be very firm then. In other words, Resolved conviction. Make up your mind. Don't waffle. Don't be like the, the person who vacillates in the wind. Be very firm then to keep all that is written and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. So the secret to success is resolution to seek the Lord and obey what is written in the Bible so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. So there's this resolved singularity. You need to make up your mind. I'm following God and I'm going to not only know those things, I'm going to do those things. Verse 7, now watch this. In order that you may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, this is pagan nations with pagan gods, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Verse 8. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So the word cling, what's your Bible say? Hold fast? Cling. cling. All right? That's the word. Cleave. What's the first word in verse 8? But. What is but? A form of speech. Part of speech is it's an adversative conjunction, meaning on the other hand. So verse 8 says, I want you to cling to me. Verse 7 is what clinging is not. It's the opposite. It's the alternative. It's the adversative. What is verse 7 about? Other gods and the nations who have them. What are other gods to God? What are little g's to big g? Rivals. And what I like about this passage is verse 7 doesn't say, hey, stay away from rival gods. I want you to cling to me. Watch the, the progression. <laughs> I don't want you to associate with nations who have them. And I don't want you to mention the name of their gods. I don't want you to swear by them. I don't want you to serve them. I don't want you to bow down to them. Let me put it this way. I don't want you to have anything to do with any rival of mine. I don't want you to hang out with people who have rivals to me. I want you to exclusively, without a rival, cleave to me in undivided loyalty. Do you feel it? This means, yes, I do. Because I'll say it again if you don't do that. I'm teasing. 
So let me tell you about marriage. It's to establish an unrivaled, exclusive relationship with no competition. Because you know what she is and what this relationship involves, it requires something, undivided loyalty. Now let's talk rivals. Charles Stanley just passed away this past week, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta. Charles Stanley's nationally known, internationally known, pastor of First Baptist. His wife divorced him. Did you know that? Do you know why she divorced him? What came out of the trial, the divorce trial? Divorcing Charles because he has a mistress. Everybody gasped. Do you know who his mistress was? She identified the mistress. The church. Charles is married to the church. See, you can have a rival, and it seemed like a good one. It doesn't have to be another woman, or your wife can have a rival. It may not be another woman. It could be your job. You could so commit yourself to your vocational priority that you are committed to that over her. Could be your children. Could be your hobbies. In Alabama, they talk about hunting season widows. He leaves for the month because he's going to kill whatever deer he's going to kill or shoot whatever he's going to shoot, and he's gone every weekend. And it's a thing. You can have hobbies that prioritize themselves over your wife. Activities. Buddies. And then there's the business, the plain business, the overt and obvious competition of some other woman, not your wife. No rivals. No chats with a woman, not your wife. No growing friendship with a woman, not your wife. No images that you view, not your wife. I'll tell you what, I've seen pain, but one of the greatest pain is when a woman finds out her husband's looking at other women and she can't compete with that. I grew up with a song, I'm a girl watcher, I'm a girl watcher, just watching girls go by. Anybody know that song besides me? Google it. It's a cultural thing. Before you get married, you watch, you look. And in the South, it's not very subtle. But there are guys who look, and you can watch them look in the restaurant, you can watch them look at the mall, girl has a particular thing on or not on, she has a particular look or style, she's driving a particular car, guys are looking. Guess what husbands shouldn't do? Look. When you say, I'm choosing you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and health until death do us part, you are promising an exclusive, unrivaled relationship. And I'm not going to surf, and I'm not going to compete. I'm not going to hold you in competition to women you can't compete with. I had a guy sit in my office, true story. They came to see me, what's the issue? He won't stop looking at other women. That was her issue. Not an old couple, younger couple. This is what he said. I can read the menu as long as I don't order. Now listen, I'm not a violent person, but I wanted to smack him. I, I, I said to him, I said, give me, just, just give me a sense of what you think she feels when she hears you say that. 
Do you think she feels like a princess? Do you feel like she's one of a kind? Do you feel like she's custom made for you? Or do you feel like she's got a rival that she can't compete with even if you say you know more? Gentlemen, I'm here today as a brother and a friend to say God has provided a solution that is necessary normatively. And the only way that solution works, even with the right person, is when that person is in an unrivaled relationship. She knows she's first. She has no competition. There's authority, leave. There's security, you and only you. Now listen, I know how hard it is in this culture, but a good man who makes convictional commitments honor those commit honors those commitments. So shut it off, turn it off, disconnect, do what it takes in order to establish the priority where your girl says, I'm secure in this relationship because you cling to me. Don't mention their gods. Don't bow down to their gods. Don't even hang out with the people who have that. All right, finally, and I know I need to be through. Become one. Go back to Genesis verse 24. Cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word flesh can be translated soul. Often it is. I like one soul because one flesh implies... Sexual union, physical union. And physical union, intimacy, is the goal of marriage. But physical union is not the means to that. It's the outcome of that. The two naked and not ashamed is intimacy, which is the antithesis of aloneness. And it's the byproduct of oneness. Becoming one is unity. If you've been to a wedding, they do unity candles, right? Or unity something, unity ropes or sand, whatever the thing is now. If you do outdoor weddings, candles don't work. So there's a ceremony part in a wedding meant to, to communicate the two are no longer two. They're now one. They're united. Not his family, not her family, a new unit. One soul, new unit. Marital math, one plus one equals one. Jesus said, the two are no longer two, they are one. Why are they one? Because they're united. Here's the key words, in values and in vision. You may not be one on the color of the carpet or the kind of car, but you better be one on values and vision as it relates to the convictions of your home and family. How we're going to raise our children, whether we're going to borrow money or not borrow money, 75% of families who fail, marriages who fail, fail over money. Different values. Charge it, buy it on time, this is how we're going to spend it. That's a value thing. Whether we're going to discipline our children this way, whether we're going to go to church, not go to church. All of the value vision stuff you have to be united on. Do you know the term detente? In the Cold War, Russia and America of mutual destruction, there was a policy called detente. Detente was peaceful coexistence. We don't agree, but we don't agree. In a way that's violent, but we're not united. Detente doesn't work in marriage on values and vision. You can't agree to disagree on the stuff that matters, which means what? You have to come together. 
You have to talk it through. You have to work it through. You have to get biblical counsel, people counsel, until you can come together and say, yeah, this is how we're going to raise our children. This is how we're going to spend our money. This is how we're going to do Christ in church. This is how we're going to do life. This is what matters. Now listen, are girls guys? No, they're different. Biologically different. They're designed different. They're made out of different things. They're for different purposes. So guess what? She's raised in one house. You're raised in another house. You come together in your home. You don't agree on everything. And it's not always obvious at the beginning. But when it emerges that we're on different pages, the solution is to have constructive conversation to the point where you can agree, not agree to disagree. Are you tracking with me? Because what that does is it violates the two becoming one. You can write it down, but Ezekiel 37 talks about two kings and two kingdoms coming together in the symbol of two sticks, united together becoming one stick, no longer two nations, two kings, one nation, one king. It's that idea. Unity matters in your home. It's a necessary pillar in the context that produces the solution that solves the problem. And physical intimacy, if it's possible, because there's issues of sickness and, and all kinds of challenges, but if possible, is the consummation of authority in the right place, security in the right place, and unity in the right place. That's naked and not ashamed. And that's the sweetest provision on the planet. And it's possible under the power of God, through the word of God, with two people depraved and fallen, saved by God. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what that is, gentlemen? That's a maximized life. Missionally and personally. And you know what else it is? Work. <coughs> and all the husbands say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> but it's worth the work. Can you say amen again? Yes. Amen. 41 years in a month, June 6th. Excuse me, June 5th. I got married the day before my birthday, so I have the best birthday present ever. So that's what Harry's wanting to bring to a group of men in a world that doesn't value marriage and doesn't, com doesn't commit itself to the essentials to experience what marriage promises because of who designed it and who gave it. And you can have it and you need it. And that's my hope, that you'll have that conviction. And this is where brothers need brothers. Because some of you have got some bad habits. I did. I grew up in a Christian home. I had Christian parents, but I wouldn't call me God's gift to being a husband. Work too much. Play too hard. There's no way Karen was convinced she was without a rival. I'm glad that's not true today. But it wasn't an evil man, it was an ignorant man. I'm grateful I am where I am today. Not perfect, but I think if you call 205-427-1649 and say, do you like this arrangement? She would tell you she does. And the biggest single, and I'll finish with this, because we're out of time. The single biggest tool in my home today is what I call porch time which is 15 minutes every day, every day, unless we're apart like I was this morning, 
15 minutes, Bible open. I'll read two verses. She reads two verses. Paragraph, chapter, depending upon the length. Finish our reading. Honey, what stood out to you? This is what stood out to me. How can I pray for you? Do you know how much preparation that takes? None. Yeah, that's right. You don't have to study the Bible. You read it with your wife. What stood out to you? Why do you think it stood out to you? This is what stood out to me. How can I pray for you today? If you called that same number, 205, you want to do it? 205-427-1649 and say, hey, Karen, what's your favorite thing about your time with Harry? Porch time. It's the best single investment I know to offer you as a husband. Because it's fellowship and intimacy around the treasure of a common joy and experience in Christ. And you can do that. You don't have to go to seminary to do that. Father, thank you for the opportunity today. Thank you for these men. Lord, these are seeds planted in hearts, and I'm asking you to nurture and nourish water and produce the fruit that only you can. Man sows seeds, men water and plow, but God brings the increase. And Lord, it's these men that I'm asking you that you would produce fruit that's undeniable, that remains. That their life will be different. That even maybe today they would share with each other and then communicate at home and say, listen, I, I've learned some things and I want to adjust some things and I'd like to do it with you. And I pray, God, that the fruit of our time together will be eternal. And that at the end of time, when you come and we gather together in your presence, it would be with great joy, not just because we're with you, but we can testify of what you did through us before we got to meet you. That's my prayer. And I ask it for us all. In Jesus' name. And all God's men said. Amen. Amen.